I, for the first time in my life, knew what it felt like to hit rock bottom, and I knew something had to change. Because it was just something that was never talked about. It was never taught in schools either. And um, I think it's honestly one of the best decisions, medical decisions I've made for myself in my entire life. Welcome to the first episode of season three of the Raw Talk podcast. It's the dawn of a new academic year, and we wanted to make this episode completely student-focused. Today, we're going to talk mental health in grad school. We've had some really engaging discussions around the science behind depression, suicide, and mood disorders back in season two. So if you're interested, definitely check out episodes 23, 24, and 26. Our goal for today's episode was more practical. Initially, we wanted to create a guide of the mental health resources and initiatives at the University of Toronto and surrounding community to see what resources students found useful. This episode turned into so much more. Today, you'll hear about what one university in Canada is doing to care for student well-being, but you're also going to hear the stories of graduate students across Toronto who struggled with their own mental health and the resources and coping strategies that allowed them to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Their stories inspired us, and we hope that some aspect of them strikes a chord with you listeners as well. Please be advised that in certain conversations, our guests opened up about their feelings and moments where they felt most vulnerable. The content may be triggering to some individuals. One final announcement before we dive in. We wanted to do a little something to show that we're practicing what we preach in this episode. Join us at RYU Apparel on October 10th, World Mental Health Day, to learn about the benefits of and science behind mindfulness. We had so much fun talking to mindfulness practitioner and PhD student Ellie Weisbaum a couple weeks ago for episode 42, and we thought we'd give you guys a chance to hang out with her as well. The education hour will be followed by a guided yoga flow with another graduate student and yoga instructor, Lauren DeFreitas. Tickets are by donation, and all proceeds will go to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Okay, let's dive into the episode. For us, this story starts at U of T's Health and Wellness Center ground zero for all things student physical and mental well-being. We reached out to Janine Robb, executive producer of the Health and Wellness Center, to talk about the services offered to graduate students at U of T. When should a student reach out to the Health and Wellness Center about their mental health? Well, I think students are having a hard time right now with unusual emotional experiences. I think university brings different challenges and maybe some of the feelings that they haven't had before or levels of stress. But I would say when symptoms are persistent and are interfering with the tasks of being a student and something like that might be not being able to concentrate, mm-hmm. not being interested in their usual activities, their appetite is off, their mood is low, or they're very, very anxious, their sleep's disrupted, but not because they decided to do an all-nighter. <laughs> right. Um, and thoughts of harm to self or others. Those would be some of the symptoms I'd be paying attention to and would want individuals to come and seek some help at that time. That was very helpful and we'll definitely include links into the description. Fantastic. Appreciate it. Thank I also you appreciate much. you getting this out to students because I think that's part of our challenge is that they also get so in- inundated with information from the university that they kind of just turn it off and yeah. when it's coming from their own, <laughs> yeah. they pay uh, closer attention. Janine seemed to think that students would listen to information about the university's health and wellness services if it came from other students. We thought the same thing, so we talked to some students advocating for mental health awareness both on and off campus. The first student you'll hear from was Jacqueline. 
She's a PhD candidate in medical biophysics at U of T and a Vanier scholar, pretty much the most prestigious Canadian scholarship you can get at the PhD level. She's also one of the co-chairs of GradMinds, a student-led group that aims to improve student mental health on campus. We asked her why she decided to join GradMinds. I've always been passionate about mental health issues. I started struggling myself with an anxiety disorder about when I was around 13 and it brought me a lot of challenges both in high school and in uh, my undergraduate program. And so I knew that I wanted to be involved in advocacy to make mental health challenges easier for students to deal with within the community. So um, when I started my graduate student experience at U of T, I went online to see what was available and I noticed GradMinds was um, one of the most prominent organizations for mental health, especially for the graduate student population. So I reached out and there was actually a chair position available. So I jumped right in. You went right to the top? (laughs) Yes, I went right to the top, right from the beginning and um, started planning events and organizing, obviously working with past members to get comfortable with the role and what I would be doing. An important objective of GradMinds is to spread awareness of mental illness to students across campus through anti-stigma campaigns and public talks. We asked Jacqueline why she thinks it's still so important to increase student awareness. As I was dealing with my own mental health challenges and met more and more people who were dealing with their own mental health challenges and mental illnesses, I recognized how the people around us who did not have mental health challenges, how stigmatized they were and how little they really did understand about what mental health challenges actually were. And some of the language that people use on an everyday basis that they think um, is just normal and is not affecting other people in the way that it sometimes is. So, for example, when people say, like, someone is deranged or, like, if you have a mental health challenge, you're crazy or you're not smart or not capable of success or um, there's a lot of people who, you know, would be worried about an employer knowing about them having a mental health challenge or a supervisor within a graduate student program thinking that maybe this would make them less likely to be able to join a lab or get an employment or get promoted, for example. So mental health awareness is so important for me to help people both within the mental health community, but also people who don't know so much about mental health and mental illness currently, to learn more and to realize how pervasive mental health and mental illness actually is, and um, to learn what it actually means, and how it presents differently for everybody. And lots of extremely, extremely successful people have struggled with multiple mental health issues, Obviously, we've all seen the struggle that Robin Williams went through, J.K. Rowling as well. People who have won the Nobel Prize have also suffered with mental illnesses as well. People who have won the Vanier Scholarship. Yes, (laughs) exactly. So there's a lot of really successful people who struggle with mental illness, and mental illness is not something you can see from the outside most of the time, and a lot of the people in your life probably are struggling with a mental health challenge that you aren't even aware of, and you don't necessarily think that they're crazy or weird or incapable, and yet they are struggling with a mental health challenge that you don't even know about. So it just goes to show you that um, mental health is something that is a lot more pervasive than you think. It's about one in four individuals. In grad students, mental health and mental illness is equally pervasive, and anxiety and depression are actually extremely, extremely common in graduate students. So recent studies show that anxiety and depression are about six times more common in graduate students than in the general population. So this is huge. And uh, that stems from a variety of things. 
there's a lot of pressure in grad school to be successful, to publish, to produce results, to keep up with your peers. There's also pressure from our supervisors in order to achieve certain results and to make certain deadlines. We also have limited financial support in many cases, so a lot of people struggle financially and that causes them a lot of stress as well. And graduate school is also a less formally structured environment. So a lot of students, you know, coming from undergrad, you're really used to having deadlines and tasks set out for you so you could follow through. Whereas in graduate school, a lot of people are not used to having to set their own tasks and their own deadlines, and they can struggle with motivation. They can struggle with what are my next steps? How do I get started? And this causes them their own stress as well. And then, of course, there's the common theme of everybody being stressed about what are they going to do after? So mm-hmm. graduate school, a lot of people love to continue with their education, but then they're worried about, so, you know, what are the next step for me after I finish this? And a lot of people are unsure and not knowing their future career path also causes anxiety and depression in graduate students as well. So grad students clearly have a lot of reasons to be anxious. Jacqueline and I discussed another huge problem in grad school, the idea of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon. It's this idea that you don't belong, that you're not qualified. It's the experience of constant questioning and comparing yourself to others. And it can be absolutely crippling to experience that long term during grad school. Jacqueline says it's unproductive because when we compare ourselves to others, we're comparing apples to oranges. She also offers an easy solution to imposter syndrome. I mean, we all have a tendency to compare ourselves to the other people within our program or within our lab and how much their results are progressing relative to ours. But really, every single individual student's project is so completely different and achieves results at different pace. So when we are comparing ourselves to others, we're really comparing apples to oranges. And it's not helpful for us because it's causing us stress that is not necessary. And we should really be focusing on our own internal progress and how much that we're completing rather than comparing ourselves to other people. And, you know, one of the big ways to deal with imposter syndrome is to actually recognize that you're feeling that and talk to your peers about it. So rather than, you know, just thinking that all your peers are super confident in their research and you're the only one who's feeling unconfident, if you actually talk to your peers, more likely than not, they're feeling the exact same way that you are. And when you communicate that with them, you start to realize, wow, you know, they are no better than me. They're feeling exactly the same way and we both deserve to be here. We're just working hard and working on different things. In addition to spreading awareness, GradMinds also lets students know what exactly their resources are. As Janine said at the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of information coming from our universities and sometimes it's difficult to navigate. GradMinds outlines the resources available and takes students through what's covered by our tuition and university health plan. There are multiple resources both on campus such as the Health and Wellness Center where there's doctors that can refer you to counselors. Um, There's also a a psychology clinic at OISE that Mm. you can get sessions for about $25 a session which is a lot cheaper than a psychiatrist that you might pay for within the community. They are a helpful resource because actually there are a lot of free counseling services within the Toronto area, even outside of campus, and those are great. However, a lot of them have really limited availability and uh, limited appointment times available and often really long wait lists. So a lot of students, they want counseling or therapy and they want it for free, obviously, because we have no financial stress. Yes. However, they'll go in and they say, okay, it's three months until your first appointment. And for some students, especially if they're dealing with imminent mental health health issues that need 
addressing you know right away it's not always possible with the free services out there so sometimes we have to look for lower cost options or maybe we have to reprioritize our finances and try and see if we can put aside some money towards counseling to prioritize our health over everything else. Jacqueline mentions that GradMinds also host their own events to give students better coping strategies. We've had a variety of different workshops so for example at Our recent mental health conference, we had a workshop on how to use exercise and physical activity as a means for dealing with your mental health challenges. So it was both informational as well as giving you practical tips. And we had a cognitive behavioral therapy workshop where students learned about how to use cognitive behavioral therapy, both to help their anxiety and depression symptoms as well as stress. And you guys are having a Yes, and we're actually having another cognitive behavioral therapy workshop coming up. It will be um, September 27th. So uh, look out for that one. Definitely come out because we'd love to have you there. We also offer at GradMinds different means of just de-stressing. So we have weekly yoga classes that are actually free. This year, they're going to be offered uh, on Mondays from 12 to 1. There are obviously a ton of resources available for students on campus. We're going to link all the ones mentioned in the episode description. Another resource that's actually available Canada-wide was brought to our attention by Anjali, an MSc student at the Hospital for Sick Children who volunteers at the Toronto Distress Centre. She said she became more acutely aware of mental illness when she moved to Toronto to start grad school, and her life unsurprisingly became a lot more stressful. One of the things that I did was I signed up to volunteer with Toronto Distress Centers, and it's been one of the most amazing and eye-opening experiences. It's definitely scary, especially because... So sorry, a little bit of background on Toronto Distress Centers. It's a 24-hour mental health and crisis support line. So anyone can call in that's experiencing something difficult uh, from the Toronto community. And even it's people from all over the country can give us a call if they're able. And it's basically a non-judgmental service that people have access to where they can talk about anything that they need to talk about and Doing that really opened my eyes to really what sorts of issues are going on in the community that we're not aware about in terms of mental health because people just don't talk about it. And it's it's not surprising that people don't talk about it because there's such a huge stigma. And I think that stigma is also present in graduate school because it's not something that's really spoken about and the culture really doesn't. If you're moving more slowly with your research, I feel like people think that there's something wrong with them and that they're easily replaceable. (laughs) They don't want to address the real issue and they don't know who to talk to about it. That's really not true. I think if people talk about it and they take the time that they need to do things at their own pace or even take a break for a little while so they can come back, it's so much more productive. There are three helplines associated with the Toronto Distress Centre. The first is a general 408 helpline that anyone can call into for any issues they want to talk through. The second is Crisis Link. If you've used the Toronto Transit Commission, you may have noticed that there are bell payphones on the subway platforms. People can use them to call in if they're having thoughts of suicide. Finally, the Toronto Distress Centre is part of a network of centres in Canada that's part of the Canadian Suicide Prevention Service, or the CSPS. It's a priority line and the first of its kind in Canada to provide nationwide support for people struggling with thoughts of suicide. For the most part, though, Anjali deals with the 408 helpline. For the most part, it's just you get a whole bunch of different issues. And one of the things that I love 
most about volunteering at the distress center and my biggest takeaway was that it really opens up your eyes to what's out there because you think you have a good understanding of how the world works but you hear things from people that are experiencing things that are so different from anything that you could ever even imagine and it really makes you question a lot of the biases that you didn't even realize you had so it makes you so much more open-minded and just non-judgmental and it makes you take a step back from yourself and really question if this is really an issue and something that's going on how can we address it just because it hasn't been brought to the forefront doesn't mean it's not uh, legitimate so we hear things from people from a wide variety of topics from suicide, of course, to people just really having a bad day and being so socially isolated that they have no one to talk to. So they call us, which is great. Growing up with a family and always going to school and being surrounded by lots of friends, that was one of the things that I never thought people would really have to struggle with. But there are people out there who really have no one to talk to for whatever reason or they don't feel comfortable. So the great thing about the Distress Center is that it provides that outlet for them. And that being said, students as well, it's open to anyone in the community. So I definitely think students should reach out and at least try out the service and see if it can be helpful to them because it can't hurt. So what do you do to self-care or take care of your own mental health? So I actually, this is something new. I never really paid attention to taking care of that before I started at the University of Toronto. And it's, <laughs> I think it's really important. I don't, right away, it was hard for me to see the benefit. I felt like I was really wasting my time and there were things that I needed to do related to school. And I was so anxious that I couldn't even take a break. But once I forced myself to continue doing little things I really saw an improvement in my overall productivity and mental health so some of those things were for me yoga I hated yoga at first it was the worst thing I'm still the least flexible person on the planet Um, but just the idea of being in a group with other people who are also trying to relax um, was really it's, it's a good environment and a good energy to surround myself in, even if I'm not good at bending in all of the funny ways that the instructors do. It, it really does. It helped me. Also, going to the gym, I started to exercise more frequently, which, again, was something was really hard to do at first because stepping away from my research was something that I had a hard time balancing with doing things outside of the lab. Also, sometimes I just <laughs> I just go to the water downtown and I just sit. So if I have some reading to do, I won't stay in the lab in like a room with artificial lighting. I'll go outside, especially in the summer. And that's something that's really helpful, at least for me. After talking to Janine, Jacqueline and Anjali about the wide range of services provided on and off campus, we wondered what resources and coping strategies students were actually using. Are they using health and wellness services, free yoga, mindful moments, or helplines? From our call out a couple of weeks ago, we had numerous students reach out to share their stories of mental health-related struggles in grad school and their advice to students having now seen the light at the end of the tunnel. We've run into Geith, who is a PhD student in the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto, and we're going to ask him a couple of questions about his experiences with mental health resources at 
the university. Keith, in your experience, have you found some resources for mental health that you have found to be useful for you? Uh, certainly. About three and a half years ago, I uh, went to the Health and Wellness Center at the Koffler Center mm-hmm. on St. Georgian College. And, you know, I went through the process. I saw a GP there, a family doctor at the walk-in clinic, asked them for a referral to their psychological and counseling services. And um, I think it's honestly one of the best decisions, medical decisions I've made for myself in my entire life. Wow. Honestly. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard for us to make that decision, to take that step. Was it difficult for you? And if it was, what triggered that decision? So I wouldn't say it was difficult for me at the time, but I think that was because I reached a point of stress and just things that were happening in my life kind of, I felt like I had to talk to somebody. I wasn't in a very good place. And so it wasn't a matter of, you know, because I think a lot of the time we feel like, oh, am I doing badly enough? Is my mental health in such a bad state that it justifies or warrants seeing a therapist or counselor or what have you? And the reality is that really we might not be the best judge of that. It's hard to really say. And if you aren't feeling that great, you should see somebody. And it's made me a much more productive and satisfied and happy and fulfilled graduate student and person as a whole. That's phenomenal and that's such a great insight because often you're right we maybe are not the best judge and might not feel like we need that but we do. Um, Were there any other resources throughout your graduate journey that you found really really helpful? For me personally making time to work out is a really, really big thing. Um, It's become part of my routine. I never thought I would be that person. I usually scoffed at just like people who just were, you know, doing everything right and whatever. But it's really not about that. It's just, I, I don't know, it's very, I mean, there's a lot of evidence also, obviously, that for a lot of mental health issues, exercise can help, um, whether cardiovascular exercise or more recently, there's some evidence that resistance training can actually help with mild to moderate depression. And so it's definitely worth making the time. So my advice to the students I mentor, um, the undergrads and new grad students that I talk to, or anybody really is, if you have any doubts about your well-being, how you're feeling, your mental health, if something feels off, just go talk to somebody. It's really, really worth it. If you stumble upon a professional that you can talk to about everything and they approach it from a very sort of a medical approach, a therapeutic approach, you really get a lot out of it. Yeah. A couple people have complained about the wait times with mental health services. So yep. for you, did you experience any of that or was it a pretty seamless process? That's a very good question because that's one of the most common questions I actually get from friends and lab mates, whoever. For whatever reason, I didn't really have to wait that long. I know, so I I don't mean to sort of discount what people have said to me that they've had to wait. I'm sure that's the case. Maybe it's a time of year thing. I have heard that in the fall, so in September, it's a pretty busy time to go. I don't know the facts really, but the reality is that for me, I just went and within a month, I got a call from the counseling services section of the health and wellness and I got an assessment 
And then I started, and I've been seeing the same therapist for three years now. Awesome. So even though it may take long, I guess the sort of TLDR, as the kids say these days, <laughs> oh God, I'm aging myself. Um, my summary, I guess, to answer that question would be, even if it does take long, I promise you that it is worth it. If it even if it takes three months, think of it this way, like you've waited, you've already, there's so many times where you've been stressed and you've been alone. At least just the feeling that you have something coming up, that you're going to get a phone call, you're going to see someone, you're going to initiate this process of, okay, now I'm in their system. Oh, great. Now I have an appointment. And then it's great. And even worse comes to worse, if you don't really find the therapist or counselor or whoever that you're seeing, maybe you don't jive you don't have that sort of like rapport that you find is fruitful for your mental health for whatever reason, then they can refer you to another person, another psychiatrist, another psychologist, another social worker, whatever it is. And you won't have to start from scratch because they've already done the assessments. So just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it. The wait time, even if it's long, It'll pass please anyway. don't let that deter you. And in the meantime, just Talk to people you're close to. Talk to people who you feel will listen. Friends are really important. Family, if you're close to your family, all of that. Okay, good luck graduating this year. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll need it. Thanks so much. Keith had a positive experience with the health and wellness system at U of T. As a result of reaching out for help and incorporating exercise into his routine, he's become a more productive graduate student. We next caught up with Alina a master's student in nutritional sciences who sensed something was off about her mental health during high school, but only started seeking help after a particularly awkward departure from an undergraduate research experience. Although she's accessed health and wellness at U of T, you're going to hear about how she's integrated on and off campus resources to get to where she is today. It wasn't until I took on like this volunteer research position through like an affiliated lab at our department and like I started to notice things that I thought were normal at first that like possibly other people went through but I wasn't really sure like I I had a lot of trouble asking for help Mm. and talking to like figures of authority like professors and actually talking to the PI of the lab that I was volunteering for and and so it just kept snowballing to the point where I was just digging myself a hole deeper and deeper where I was just not asking for help I wasn't getting the work done because I didn't know how to do it because I didn't ask for help and then it became this huge issue where I I was like super embarrassed (laughs) to say I needed help and that you know, I have months worth of like no work. <laughs> um, so that's when I first noticed I had a problem. And then it got so bad that I just kind of like slipped out. Like I did like an Irish goodbye, like the academic version of it. I just kind of like slipped out of the lab. <laughs> and I kind of like told people different stories because I wasn't even sure why I was leaving. But I just knew like that was such a weird way to leave. And I didn't understand why was it so hard for me to do this thing that other undergrads were doing. Like, you know, it's expected in life science that you get a research position in second year or third year or whatever, and I couldn't do it. Um, And then at that point I was like, okay, let me just go to U of T Health and Wellness. It feels like something is wrong. Why don't I just fill out the intake form? I wasn't really expecting anything. I was like, let me just, just do it. And then I'll see like what happens. Yeah. So from going to health and wellness and filling out the forms, they got back to me after a couple of months and I had an intake appointment. So they asked me a bunch of questions there. And then within a week I was paired up with a psychologist the psychologist is like, yeah, you have social anxiety. And I was like, oh, <laughs> really? It's <laughs> the first time hearing about it. Yeah, I was like, I don't think, when I think of social anxiety and like just commonly in like pop culture and like society and stuff, like I don't think I fit that mold. 
for social anxiety, what it looks like for me is I like have problems talking to certain people sometimes where I sort of do like a lot of mind reading and I think that people already feel a certain way about me through their body language or the way they talk to the point where I just don't want to engage with them. So then I end up avoiding certain situations like research positions or like not pursuing them. And so I worked a lot with like the counselor or my psychologist at U of T Health and Wellness. We did a bunch of different things that like some worked and some didn't work. Like CBT is common for social anxiety. I didn't like it because for CBT, like I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but one like core aspect of CBT is that you fill out these thought records. And the idea is that if you're experiencing like a very anxious thought spirally moment, you're supposed to write down what that hot thought was. Say, for example, it can be something really insignificant that like just takes over your life. Like, I think my PI doesn't think that I can do this, right? And then you have to write down evidence for the thought and evidence that doesn't support the thought and also like the emotions attached to that thought. And then once you look at all the evidence for it, which is usually not a lot because it's just all in your head and the evidence that refutes the thought, you're supposed to write a more balanced thought after. But essentially the reason why it didn't work for me is because it was so emotionally draining. Cognitive behavioral therapy didn't work for Alina. She was having way too many anxious thoughts a day, and it was too much emotional effort for her to go through this exercise every single time. What did work for her? She attended MBSR, or Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Group Therapy Sessions through U of T's Health and Wellness Services, started doing yoga, and decided, together with her doctor, to try going on low doses of a drug called Effexor. She says it's changed her life, but she cautions that different strategies have worked at different times in her mental health journey. She incorporated MBSR into her routine as she grew into her diagnosis. Likewise, she says that she was super against going on medication when she was first diagnosed, but became more open to the idea a few years later. Finally, Alina started seeing one of the graduate student-specific counselors at U of T. So some other services that I've tried. There's a grad counselor at U of T, so you can be referred to a graduate-specific counselor here, which was really great too. But the thing about a lot of these services at U of T is that it's short-term, which makes sense because we have so many students in need. So it's kind of hard because you get bounced around a lot because, um, you know, after your certain, like, 16 sessions or, or whatever, you find yourself kind of like, oh, what do I do now? So I saw a grad counselor, but her contract was up just this May. I sought out external counseling in the community, Um, So that's another thing that grad students can tap into if they so choose to. There's a lot of uh, low-cost or sliding-scale options um, around the community. For example, I go to Hard Feelings. They're really new. I think they're actually having their, like, one-year anniversary this Sunday. But they do sliding-scale counseling with a... What's sliding-scale counseling? Oh, sorry. Um, So sliding-scale means that you pay based on your financial situation. So they go from $50 a session up to $80 a session. But market rate is usually like $200 a session, so it's like super expensive. So the great thing is that they also take your insurance. So my counseling is covered by my GSU health plan. And then because I TA'd a certain number of hours last year, I also get an additional top-up through the QP um, health plan. So altogether, I get $1,500 worth of mental health coverage, which is like super sweet. (laughs) Which during the year you can stretch pretty far, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Especially if you go for the sliding scale or low cost counseling in the community, it goes really far, like $50 a session. I can't do math, but like. (laughs) You go every week. Yeah. That's like what? That's like $1,500 to $5,500. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. We figured it out. It works out to around 30 sessions a year. And Alina has really liked her experience so far. It's great. Um, I love my counselor. She's like this cute Korean lady. 
<laughs> I love her. So it's yeah, it's amazing. Um, so I'm like in a really good place lately, but like three, four years ago, I was definitely not. So yeah, that's my story. <laughs> nice. One student who reached out to us wished to remain anonymous, but still share her story in the hopes of helping other struggling graduate students. We'll call her Lisa. Lisa's struggles with mental health began long before she entered graduate school. They started in elementary school and were at their worst in high school. Throughout this time, Lisa didn't receive help partially because she didn't know that mental illness was something that was treatable and partially because her parents came from a culture where mental health issues were heavily stigmatized and they didn't believe she was dealing with real problems. When Lisa started her degree in psychology, it was then that she became truly aware of how bad and how common her struggles were. She realized what she was dealing with for so many years was something called generalized anxiety. She shared what she had gone through in high school with a couple of her closest friends who agreed with her assessment. They told her if it ever happened again, they wanted her to seek help. She promised she would. Lisa was fairly stable for around two years after completing her degree and for her first semester of graduate studies. Then, in January of this year, her anxiety returned. It started with a single thought, one she was obsessed with in high school, a crushing fear of dying. It came out of nowhere, and Lisa started panicking and hyperventilating. A full-blown panic attack followed. She knew she had to do something, but wasn't sure what. Like any good student, she turned to Google. The first resource she found was Good to Talk, a free helpline for post-secondary students. Speaking to a professional directly on the phone felt better than trying to navigate her next steps by using the internet. The counselor she spoke to recommended she try to see a counselor through the University of Toronto, especially since the services were covered through her tuition fees. Lisa's first attempt at navigating U of T's health and wellness department was confusing and time-consuming at best. First, she was told that she needed to get a referral from her family physician, which she did. When she returned with the referral, she was told that they had needed to complete a special set of forms. When she received the forms, there was a need for a diagnosis by a psychiatrist, which she didn't have. The laundry list of tasks was daunting. She decided to go back to her doctor and have the doctor refer her to a different counselor. But then she couldn't afford the cost of their services. From there, she decided to try a community clinic with lower costs for counseling services. When she finally got through to one, she was informed that the waitlist was six months long. Ouch. Lisa was in crisis. Her mental health was deteriorating at an alarming rate week by week, and there was no way for her to get immediate help. That was scary for her. Lisa says, you don't learn about how damaged the mental health system is until you're trying to use it. I wasn't in danger of harming myself, unless you count my mental state negatively impacting my grades. But the thought of someone who was in danger of self-harm going through what I did is horrifying. By the time help would be available to them, it could be too late. At this point, she was considering trying BetterHelp, an online counseling service. At the same time, it became apparent to one of Lisa's instructors that something was off, and the instructor took the time to reach out to her and find out what was wrong. Because he cared enough to do something, she felt comfortable opening up to him a bit about her struggles which she says was one of the best decisions she's made for her mental health. He was able to immediately connect her with a counselor at U of T, who then put her on the right track to seeing a psychologist for cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. 
The process still wasn't the fastest, but once she was in the university's health and wellness system, she was able to see all the steps she needed to take to get the help that she needed. That light at the end of the tunnel gave her hope. From the moment Lisa knew something was wrong to her first appointment with her psychologist, nearly four months had passed. But considering the six-month waiting list, that was actually fairly fast. Lisa's story is a testament to the power of vulnerability. The time it took from her instructor's referral to when she saw the psychologist was only two months, and she was still seeing other people who helped her during that time. She saw a counselor and a nurse who provided her with information for free group therapy sessions, as well as other supports like mindfulness meditation sessions. The counselor went above and beyond to make sure that she was seen as soon as possible, shortening a six-week waiting period to two weeks. Lisa is happy to report that the psychologist she's been seeing for the last three months has helped her greatly. All of the services she's received through U of T have been second to none. The only difficult part was getting in, and quite honestly, that's a massive barrier. She doesn't think it should be so hard and confusing for students to get help. She says it would be helpful if the university were more transparent with the entire process. Until that happens, her advice to other students is to go in person or call into the Health and Wellness Center and talk to a real person who can walk you through the entire process. If that's something you're not comfortable with, or if the wait is too much, using services like Good to Talk and BetterHelp may get you through major crises. Lisa says the most important thing is that you talk to someone, anyone, so you can get the help you need. Different strategies and approaches may work for different people and situations. Approaches such as finding the right professional counseling is ideal for some, like Alina Geith and Lisa, and changing personal habits may be more helpful for others, like Jarrett. Jarrett, a doctoral student in sociology, described his experience with depression and how he recognized what was happening and the strategies that helped him through it. We are now fortunate enough to have Jarrett Rose, who is a graduate student studying the social determinants of mental health through a sociological lens, and he's going to share his mental health experience. Jarrett? My experience with depression began on account of three different pillars, if you will, all falling around me at the same time. One was the divorce of my parents. Two was an intimate relationship with a wonderful person that kind of began falling apart. And three was a series of graduate courses that I was taking that I was not doing well in. And it's interesting how all three of these situations unfolded in sync with one another because I basically began worrying about the well-being of my family with the divorce. I was less capable of providing my partner with the time that she would have preferred. And uh, at the same time, I began to find myself unable to focus on my schoolwork as efficiently as I had been in the past. You know, depression to me is a slow descent into a state of unhappiness that is hard to see coming. And it's not something that you notice right away. But over time, you end up finding yourself in a place that you've never been before. Uh, at least I'd never been before. And it was basically me finding myself in this descent into a person that I'd never really met before. It was me, but it wasn't me. I was kind of forced to confront these feelings of worthlessness because I 
failed my graduate courses. My partner broke up with me. There was nothing that I could do to get my parents back together. And so I basically had to find a way to pull myself out of this horrible situation on my own. And what ended up happening, fortunately, was that I ended up not of course, making it into the graduate program, I was kind of let go from the graduate program that I was in at the moment. I had gotten into another one, luckily, and I basically had to pack up all of my things, you know, alone and um, kind of down and out. And I had to move about 160 kilometers south from where I was living at the time and begin an entire new life, begin an entire new routine. This was what really brought me out of my state of depression. It was the change of environment, the change of attitude, and it was the rigid routine that I kind of had to build when entering this graduate program, taking part in graduate student associations, teaching courses, meeting new students, meeting new graduate students and colleagues, and basically redeveloping my life in a new way and being so busy that I had no time to dwell on negative thoughts and feelings that had come so simply to me in the past. All of these new experiences shaped my life and really helped me crawl out of the hole that was depression. For Jarrett, a clear routine was the pillar of his life that he created to lean on when all other pillars, relationship, family life, and school came crashing down around him at the same time. We asked how he managed to achieve that clear routine. For me, it meant buying a planner and writing down my entire day from beginning to end, from the moment that I wake up to the moment that I go to bed, and filling my time, filling my schedule with moments of busyness. I mean, for me, to be engaged in work, to be busy, to stay focused and at least partly motivated, to do things and to be successful, you know, really provided me the foundations that I needed to stand on, to stay focused, to stay oriented, and to really stay away from my own negative thoughts. Setting a strict routine was great for Jarrett to help him with the overwhelming amount of negative thoughts. He says that staying busy helped him transform the way he was thinking about himself and focus on being present in the moment. Our next guest, we'll call him Fillmore, tried to throw himself into work after the death of a family member. For him, you'll see that giving himself more of a routine had the opposite effect on his productivity. Swapna sat down with both Fillmore and his friend, who we'll call Parnassus, to talk about Fillmore's experience and the unique position Parnassus was in to help him. And now we're fortunate to have both Fillmore and Parnassus with us today, and they'll tell us a mental health experience that they shared together. I'm a graduate student, and one of my mental health experiences, and the reason my friend is here is because they actually helped me through it. There was one time I was going through a really hard time with grief. A family member who was in our care, she required 24-hour care, passed away. And I was away at the time, but when I came back, it was kind of tough to deal with it. And the way I always dealt with things was to um, try to keep doing more things. So I got into this routine where I got really, really into work, but actually wasn't working, wasn't doing anything, was getting just very, very frustrated with the work, with the people around me, you know, supervisors, lab mates. And anytime anybody would ask me something, I'd be like, it was fine. But, you know, my health was sort of suffering and 
I don't know, one day um, people had told me to seek some sort of help, some sort of therapy before, but for lots of reasons, and maybe we can talk about that, I didn't, but fortunately I had a friend who was a mental health care professional and they were able to help me through it, And but I never actually got their point of view and what made them realize what was going on. Yeah, during that time, he seemed to be explaining to people that he was fine, even though clearly it was okay not to be fine during that time. Um, he was still trying to message with our friends. You could tell he was trying to distract himself. He, a lot of it was in his work. He was an academic student, a very academic person, doing a lot of work. And even prior to the loss that he had, he was already immersed in his work. So it was very sad to see. And during that time, I also took a course on therapeutic communication. And one of the things was acceptance and commitment therapy. A lot of the principles of this, I felt, would be very applicable to him in this situation. I also became aware of the importance of self-care, and any time I would connect with him, I would try and preach this. He needed to take breaks from these things and really reflect on his own emotions just to be aware of them because it would impact him in other ways. I would give him examples of other people and how stress can manifest in your body. Yeah, what was cool about it, though, was like it felt like just friendship, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what you saw or how you made it different, but like, yeah... No. Mental health awareness isn't as big, especially like in the communities that we grew up in. So it's good that your family was able to recognize those things and were able to speak up about it. But a lot of people's from like our minority backgrounds, they ignore those type of things or like the signs may be there, but they try to ignore them. Um, they try to redirect those emotions into something else instead of addressing the issue or the concerns. Yeah. So I'm glad, especially like the importance of support networks, like friends are huge and not necessarily just friends, just like groups, clubs, all those type of things, just pro-social things are just very important, especially during those times, because when you are down is when you start to remove yourself from those and that's when you need them most, right? Um, So at that time, I started to recognize that I was busy but yeah. like you needed that so we started it was good we started trying to arrange like you know yeah, every every week like I would try and just yeah, try just to see how you're doing and I could tell it was a break from what you're doing because the work even though you may be trying to focus it's not the best distraction right because because um, it's like another stress right but yeah it was kind of cool because you guys came into the lab into the office and brought me out of it mm-hmm. you know and when I was there, like you've seen it, like when I was there, I was just like hitting my head against stuff that I would figure out in like 10 minutes if I was focused. Like, like I can see it. I've known you for a really long time and you just would be in the lab on your, I don't know, sixth coffee. Um, yeah. You could tell that like your concentration wasn't where it should be or where it normally is because you're dealing with so much and trying to then write a 4,000 word paper. Like how... Yeah effective are you really going to be right like yeah. your mind needs to be in the right place and it's just important that we take care of ourselves that we're sleeping better that we're eating better because that during those stressful times those things are also going to be neglected too so mm-hmm. we met through basically basketball in high school so at that time i knew this was something that was very therapeutic to us and a good distraction so every now and again, we would try to connect and go play basketball because while you're playing the sport, you kind of forget all those things, all the endorphins of exercise. You feel good, right? And then you're laughing. 
So you could see his mood pick up, and we could tell that this was very therapeutic to him. Our friend group would make an effort to try and check up on him, play basketball. Obviously, we all are benefiting from it, but it was something. And then we'd also get that social element because all of us were either working, studying. We were all separated, and this gives us opportunity to connect, and it was something that was good. And clearly, he's benefited from it because he's still... Still Still going. Parnassus noticed that Fillmore's behavior was out of character and actively tried to help him. What happens when that's not the case? How do you draw your friends and family in to help you? The story you'll hear now is from Brenda, a second-year master's student in the Institute of Medical Science who shares a unique game she invented that allowed her to reach out for help after an undergraduate research experience that shook her confidence and essentially shattered her self-esteem. It was not what I expected. Before I knew it, I found myself in a very hostile and emotionally and verbally abusive environment by the PhD student supervising me. I remember going into the lab. I would be yelled at, sworn at. I wouldn't be called by my name. My work would be tossed. I would be called stupid. I would be ignored. And I would overhear gossip about myself by others in the lab. What was worse is no one stopped to help, and slowly I started to develop anxiety and depression and get panic attacks in the lab. But I was determined to overcome this for the summer because I needed this opportunity on my CV for other opportunities, and I didn't want to let my parents down. And I always had that thought in my mind that any other child could have been in my position, and had I given up, I might have been taking away opportunity from someone else who would have fully used the opportunity. By the way, Brenda was adopted from El Salvador. She sets extremely high standards for herself because she recognizes what a privilege it is for her to be here in Canada. So I got through the summer and the year started and I was invited to continue with a fourth year thesis project in this lab. And in the same mentality that I had to take every opportunity I could and get my foot in the door, I said yes. However, Things started to get worse, and the anxiety increased, and the depression increased, and the frequency of panic attacks. And slowly, I started giving up on myself. My confidence was low, so I would stop eating, going out. My sleep suffered, but I still wanted those A-pluses and 4.0s, so I would push myself harder than ever to concentrate or keep attention or focus on a task at hand. And I actually do remember one day in the library studying for midterms, I couldn't focus on the task at hand. And no matter how much I kept rereading a page in a textbook, I just couldn't focus. And I was scared about letting go of everything. So I remember getting up and going to the stairwell and just crying. I, for the first time in my life, knew what it felt like to hit rock bottom. And I knew something had to change. Brenda's mentor advised her to remove herself from the lab she was working in and do something about the abusive situation. But when it came time to disclose why she was leaving, she felt guilt that by telling the truth, it might cause serious repercussions for the PhD student who was supervising her. So she blamed herself and told her supervisors and professors that it was her fault, that she wasn't able to handle the workload. When she started to apply for new labs, the professors would ask why she couldn't get a reference from her old supervisor. Brenda maintained that she had failed to balance her thesis project with her regular course load. I had lost all faith in my self-worth. I was still depressed. I was still anxious. I refused to go out. And I was scared. 
So I went home that Christmas and actually a family member who was responsible for the fruition of my adoption had been diagnosed with cortical basal syndrome, a severe form of dementia. It was my first confrontation with illness and seeing the impact it had not only on a relative, but my family. And I'd wanted to help, but I didn't know how. I knew I wanted to pursue a career in medicine at some point in my academic journey, but I wasn't there yet. And the only thought that came to my head as a way for me to help was through research in the field of neurology or dementia. But my confidence was still shot and I was scared and I was still panicking. So I slowly started to dibble my foot in research positions, volunteer, and build my way up to the courage to seek um, research in the field of neurology. And at the same time, I had to figure out a way to find myself again. I had previously tried calling helplines and booking appointments, but the wait times were ridiculous, and ultimately I couldn't get help from the resources that should have been available to me in the area. So I started a game called The Shadow Question, where I would open up to my friends and give them the opportunity to ask me anything about myself. And there was two rules, that no matter what they asked, I had to answer, but I had to answer it truthfully. And in these self-reflection questions, I learned a lot about myself. Um, one of the questions was, what does my name mean? So it has two meanings. One is flaming sword and one is little raven. And I held on to the little raven concept because to me, the one phrase that kind of popped into my head is that no matter if life clips my wings, I will always fly. And I'd realized how far I'd come and how tenacious I could be. And from that, I also started wearing a single feather in my ear the days that I felt I would be anxious at the lab or nervous or I was afraid of something. And I held on to that belief that no matter if life clipped my wings, I could always fly. And experiences in labs that I were in gave me confidence and I started to build myself up. But I remember one day someone told me after I'd made a mistake that I wasn't born knowing these things and that it would be all right. And it was like a light shone in my face that it's true, I wasn't born knowing these things, I was just human. But I started to realize something else, that I am worth something, everyone has a right as a human being, no one should be treated with disrespect, and that I should have spoke up not only for myself, but at the possibility that another could have been in my position. And I'd realized that no matter what, we should always fight for our own self-respect and dignity, and everyone deserves that, it's a right, it's not a, it shouldn't just be a privilege, and that if we see others going through similar things, we should speak up for them and help them. And that we're all equal in this sense. And this was kind of my way of coping with anxiety and depression and then finding myself again. And I don't know if others find themselves in this position, but I just hope that they know that they should find their wings and that they will fly or find something that can represent those wings because ultimately we can overcome anything if we put our mind to it. Brenda's story is a testament to her resilience. After talking to her, we wondered what we would have done in her situation. There's an inherent power dynamic between supervisors and trainees, and it's a scary feeling to think that your university doesn't have your back if you end up in a situation like this. In grad school, U of T has something called a conflict resolution center. Essentially, it's a group of graduate students who undergo training to help other graduate students deal with conflict. We caught up with some of the peer counselors, Anuya, Megan and Amika at this year's GradFest and asked them how the center had come about. 
The purpose really is to educate graduate students about the kind of resources that are available on campus. But we as fellow grad students are also trained in conflict resolution techniques. So if a student comes to us with a difficult graduate school situation, we can let them know what different options they have and what like different outcomes there would be if they pursued their options. And finally, it's up to them whether they want to go ahead with those options. Uh, we do not intervene or advocate for them. So all we are doing is, is giving an informal uh, peer advice. So unfortunately, the peer-to-peer counselors aren't going to come into your weekly meeting with your supervisor or mediate authorship disputes between you and your colleague. Megan and Amika describe the resource to be more of a sounding board. They talk through the issues students are having and point them towards tools and university policies they'll need to navigate the conflict. We talk a lot about communication and expectations and timelines and things of those nature and just how to have difficult conversations, how to prepare for bringing things up that are uncomfortable or that maybe requires a student to to be assertive and to kind of express their needs. A common theme that I see in a lot of the challenges that people bring is like lack of clarity around expectations is a big one. So we do recommend like a lot of resources like the SGS guidelines is like something we often refer to a lot. And so having a student introduce those guidelines to their supervisor and decide what they expect from that supervisory relationship and how they can contribute as well as the supervisor. Um, And we also give other tools. We have a meeting agenda that we recommend people use to help set clear expectations for what they're wanting to accomplish to kind of keep on task. There's certain resources for mapping out timelines and then knowing policies that would be helpful and beneficial to empower the student to know kind of what their rights are, how the university might support them. There is um, authorship and intellectual property guidelines, for example, that a lot of students maybe don't know about. So looking at informing and helping the student gather information and just to help empower them to, to kind of take action. Megan and Amika mentioned that you can book an appointment to talk through all kinds of situations, like trouble navigating teams or departmental culture, or even spats with your roommate. Conflict transcends all aspects of our lives. And according to Amika, conflict is actually not all bad. It kind of sounds cheesy, but I started viewing conflict more as an opportunity now. So whenever it comes up, it's like, it is uncomfortable. But at the same time, I know that if I can address it, it's going to get me to a place where I can know more about a relationship or know more about a situation that I didn't know previously and make something more clear and explicit. And so when I went through practicum experiences and I was kind of hitting roadblocks, I really looked at that, at use my conflict resolution experience and theory to help me understand that I just need to make things more explicit or I need to set expectations or timelines or things like that. So yeah, it did really help. If conflict is not your forte, consider making an appointment with one of the peer counselors or attending one of the more comprehensive workshops they run through the Graduate Professional Skills Program. Megan and Amika stress that the program is mobile and there are opportunities to talk to someone pretty much every day on any of the three U of T campuses between scheduled one-on-one appointments or drop-in opportunities. They post where they're going to be for the day on Twitter, at gradcrcuft. We'll link their Twitter and their website for you in the episode description. If you want to make a difference, there are various workshops and programming that students, staff, and faculty can participate on and off UFT campus, which help create a safer community for sharing mental health stories and for preparing us to manage situations as they occur. We'll briefly touch on an on-campus training called Safe Talk 
and then leave you guys with a final program that exists through the Mental Health Commission of Canada called Mental Health First Aid Training. So now we're sitting down with Liam O'Leary, a Safe Talk trainer at the University of Toronto, and he'll tell us a little bit more about what Safe Talk training actually is. Thank you, Swapna. Um, Safe Talk training is a suicide alertness training that was developed by Living Works. It's a three-hour training that will help participants become more suicidal alert. Um, they'll be able to recognize aspects of suicide and um, be able to connect someone with thoughts of suicide to a suicide intervention caregiver. And when do you think that students should be taking this Safe Talk training? Well, I always think it's a nice opportunity anytime to make a community a suicide safer community. And by mm -hmm. spending three hours becoming alert to the risk of suicide and to understanding a bit more about suicide, um, we, can, we can just make our communities a better place and a safer place. So I think any time is really a good time to take it. Mm -hmm. It is only three hours long, and I think people learn a lot from the session. Wonderful. And it's something that anyone can take. Anyone over 14 years of age, I believe, can take. Perfect. So whatever phase of life you're in, whether you're a student, whether you're a non-student, I think it's always a good time to take it. Perfect. And this is available on campus at the University of Toronto, but also outside of campus? Yes. Yeah. So um, University of Toronto, we offer quite a few safe talk sessions. And um, I'm really happy to facilitate as many of those as I possibly can. Um, you'll also find them in the community. If you go to the Living Works website and look for Find a Safe Talk training, um, you'll find lots listed um, in your community. There are trainings internationally across the world. And lastly, suicides do occur and have occurred within the student population. And can you speak a little bit to the importance of being aware about this? Well, we always want to be aware of the risk of suicide and we want to be able to offer help when we can. So Safe Talk training will help you to become alert to the risk of suicide and to help you find resources that where you can connect that person with thoughts of suicide to someone who's a suicide alert caregiver, suicide intervention caregiver, and can get them the help they, help they need. Mm -hmm. What we always say is suicide is everyone's business. We want everybody involved and um, direct and open communication mm -hmm. about suicide is the best way to prevent suicide. So we hope that more people will take the training and and uh, more people will be able to help those yeah. who need help. Yeah, and that's a really great perspective. As you said, creating a more suicide safe community mm -hmm. on campus and off campus. Yeah. So thank you so much, Liam, for joining us and for sharing your tips and, and your wisdom. Thank you, Swapna. We know there's physical first aid, but what about mental health first aid? Denise is a mental health first aid training and delivery specialist with the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Listen as she explains what mental health first aid training is and the framework used throughout it. Hi Denise, um, could you Hi. start maybe by introducing yourself and a little bit about what you do with the Mental Health Commission of Canada? I am the training and delivery specialist for mental health first aid. Uh, mental health first aid, we are a program of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Um, my role is one of uh, supporting instructors. I facilitate instructor trainings, uh, present at conferences on mental health first aid, the benefits of the course, and, you know, a lot of the things that have to do around supporting instructors in their role as well. Great. So what exactly is mental health first aid and what are some of the examples of the courses offered? So our course basically is, when you think about physical first aid, it's like physical first aid except it's for mental health problems. 
So what our course is designed to do, and I just also would like to um, state, too, that it is an evidence-based course. So in, in all of our participants' manual, we actually show you at the end of every section where the information comes from as well. So in all of our courses, we cover substance-related, mood-related, anxiety and trauma-related, and psychotic disorders. So the course is designed to provide participants with the knowledge of what are those signs and symptoms of those various mental health problems. It's helping participants to be aware of those changes in behavior that they see, whether it's in a family member, a friend, or a colleague. So it's about you know, strengthening the skills, providing that knowledge um, for participants to be aware of what those changes in behaviors are about, and about learning to be the best support that they possibly can be. And I think you kind of touched on this, but why is it important for people to take this training? Yeah, well, you know what, Vanessa, we see the, um, you know, we read in the media, we see on the news, um, you know, number one, we know about the, you know, suicide, risk of suicide. We know that mm -hmm. suicide is the second leading cause for our youth. Um, we talk about, you know, suicide with first responders, with veterans, and, you know, obviously we know that's not the only um, population that, that's at risk. It's about people having that understanding and being aware that when we start seeing a, a friend, let's say a colleague, for example, that, you know, somebody that was like really outgoing and um, you start to notice that they're isolating or, you know, they're not coming and having lunch with you or they're not coming, you know, to volleyball on Tuesday nights, that we don't just dismiss those changes that we see in somebody. And when we look at the stats and the number of Canadians that actually live with mental health problems and imagine that, you know, if you're struggling with something, knowing that you have people in your life that have a better understanding, and that's truly what it boils down to, Vanessa. Mm -hmm. It's just having a better understanding of how mental health problems affect individuals, what are those changes that we're going to see in individuals, and how can we have that gentle conversation about what we have noticed with them. On that note, like I noticed there's a certain framework that is used in the mental health first aid training course called LG. Could you explain that briefly as it relates to providing mental health sure. first aid? Yes, absolutely. So LG is our five, um, is our action plan. And we talk about it as being actions and not steps because it doesn't happen in any specific order. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I look at LG as a conversation guide. And so the A stands for assess. So we need to assess. And assess doesn't mean that we're assessing like a doctor or a physician or a psychiatrist assess. Mm -hmm. Assess means that we're, we're just looking and, and, and listening to that individual um, to, to, to determine how best can we support that person. Do we need to ask that question about suicide? And we only know that by really listening during that conversation. The L stands for listening non-judgmentally. And that, I will tell you, is one of the most important things that any mental health first aider can do is listen. Mm -hmm. Because if we do not listen, how do we know what is really going on with an individual? If we don't listen, we don't know what relevant questions to ask somebody. And I'll just say, like, you know, if any, and we talk about empathy when we talk about listening non-judgmentally. And if anybody really want to have, have a better understanding of what empathy is, I encourage going on YouTube and look up Brene Brown Empathy. Mm -hmm. It's a great, like, less than four-minute clip, and we actually show it in our course. It really teaches what em empathy is about. When we look at the G, G is about giving reassurance and information. And like I said earlier, it's about giving facts, and it's not about giving advice to somebody. The first E is encourage the person to get appropriate professional help. And the reason that we stress appropriate is because what's appropriate for you may not necessarily be appropriate for me. 
Plus, we have to look at what's most appropriate in that situation. Maybe we need to call 911. Maybe it's the person seeking support from their family doctor, or maybe their counselor, or maybe an elder. So we have to see what's most appropriate for that person in that situation that's occurring. And the last E is encouraging other supports. And this is where we all come into play because, you know, I, when I teach, I, you know, I say to participants, like, where would you be without supports in your life? And, you know, I think about the supports that I have in my life, you know, my friends or my family, and they, you know, I don't know where I would be without that support in my life. Mm -hmm. And we all have that ability to be a support to an individual. Absolutely. And lastly, where can people go to find out more about the Mental Health Commission of Canada or sign up for a course if they want to take this training? Yeah, absolutely. So there's actually two websites. So individuals can go to uh, www.mentalhealthcommission.ca. And, you know, the commission is, has so many more resources. It's a great, fantastic website. Um, they talk about the recovery guidelines, about peer support. There's a lot of great initiatives at the commission. So I certainly do encourage the listeners to look at the, the number of the countless resources that are available on that website. But for listeners that want to take a mental health first aid course, we obviously have our own website, and they can go to www.mhfa.ca, or you can spell it all out, mentalhealthfirstaid.ca. Either one, it's going to bring you to the website. And our instructors do post their courses. All right, great. Thank you very much. And we will definitely include the link in the description to this episode so people can great. check it out. Great, fantastic. You've heard from a lot of individuals, and we hope they've inspired you in some way. Thank you so much to all of the students who reached out and who had the courage to share their personal stories. We've tried to compile all of the resources mentioned here into the episode description. Thanks for listening, and join us on our next episode when we discuss autoimmune conditions and what it's like to live with a chronic disease at a young age. Join us on October 3rd. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts, and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.